pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny, episode 156. Today I'm going to chat with Chief Deputy Matt Thomas from Pinal County, Arizona, discuss the Ninth Circuit Court ruling on California's magazine ban, highlight the new CMMG Banshee MK17, and talk about a new study that shows why women are buying guns this year. I am your host, Ava Flanell, and Matt, how are you doing? I am doing well, Ava. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I learned something new. It's not pronounced penal, it's penal. The <laughs> yes. things you learn, even at 34, you can learn all kinds of I new know. stuff. So, <laughs> right. All right. Before I get into it, I'm talking about Manicore Arms real quick. If you guys have the CZ805 Bren, you should go check out their Bren MWOC 4 end. It basically replaces that uncomfortable Picatinny rail on your side with a nice contoured forend that has a versatile mounting option. And it's in stock right now. It's only $79.95. But if you use that code GUNFUNNY15, you get 15% off. And that is at manicorearms.com. Learn the things you never knew on Deconstructing the Industry. Okay, Matt, so you are a sheriff deputy for Pinal County. What career paths have you taken? Because I was looking over everything that you've done previously, and you have a long list of things that you've done. Can you just fill in the listeners, kind of summarize your career path? Yeah, absolutely. So you'll notice if if you ever look at my resume, you'll see that I am very ADD because uh, I have bounced around a lot in my career. And so about every like two or three, maybe four years, I would get bored and I would move on to the next venture. So I started with Pinal County back in 1993. I was 20 years old. I started in our uh, jail and I worked in there for just under a year. And then I went to the police academy and moved out to what we refer to as moving out to the road. So I moved out to the road as a sheriff's deputy and worked patrol for a few years. And then I went into our traffic unit, which is uh, that particular unit at the time. We handled all of our fatals around the county, all the fatal accidents. We did our DUI task forces and uh, we did some drug interdiction stuff. I was in there for a while and then I got recruited into our narcotics unit. And back then, the way you went into narcs is that they came to you. You didn't really put in for that job. So that's what happened. I got I got pulled in and uh, the narcotics sergeant said, hey, we want you to come work here. So I went undercover for a little bit and actually promoted out of undercover as a sergeant. And I went back to patrol, did patrol for a little bit again. And then I went into training and I was a training sergeant responsible for all the training for our agency. And out of training, I moved back into narcs and I became the sergeant over our narcotics unit and ran that unit for a few years. And from there, I moved into our motor unit, which we we didn't have a motor unit at the time. It was just a traffic unit. And the new sheriff wanted a motor unit. So I stood that unit up and became the first motor sergeant for our agency and stood up the motorcycle squad and uh, worked in there. And this entire time uh, from 97, 97, I, I tested for and got accepted onto our SWAT team. So I had been a SWAT team member and that's a collateral duty to whatever your normal duty is. So I had been on SWAT since 97. And so I was the motor sergeant until uh, 2010. And then I got promoted to lieutenant. And as the lieutenant, they created a new position 
And I took over, I became a lieutenant over our narcotics squad, our anti-smuggling squad, and also over our SWAT team. And so I ran that. And I also, I was in criminal investigations as lieutenant. And so I also had an assignment in there over persons and property crimes. But then I went on to be exclusively over SWAT smuggling and narcotics. And I did that all the way up until 2014. And in 2014, I got transferred out to patrol to be a patrol lieutenant over what is our largest populated area. We have, I think it's still the largest unincorporated area in the country. So we have about 125,000 residents in this one area that's not a city. It's it's maintained by the county. So it's a city, but it's not a city. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was a lieutenant over that region for about a year. And then they moved me back to SWAT narcotics and anti-smuggling until 2016. And in 2016, the now Sheriff, Sheriff Lamb, who, you know, many of your listeners will probably know him. He, he was, he's big on, on uh, social media. He's big in uh, live PD world. Mm-hmm. And Sheriff Lamb, when he got elected, he approached me and asked me to take a promotion to be his second in command. So I accepted that position in 2017. I promoted into that position and that's where I've been since. Wow. I have no idea how you remember all of that. <laughs> What's well, my life? I've lived every minute of it, believe me. <laughs> I mean, even dates and stuff. I'm like, yeah, you know, I think, well, let's see, when did I graduate college? Even monumental times like that, I even forget. Wow, that's really impressive. So where do I even start? Well, I will say that I've wanted to have a police officer on the show for a while, especially with everything going on. I don't know how it was in Arizona, but in Colorado, as soon as COVID hit and there was a stay-at-home order, the police announced that they weren't showing up if it was a nonviolent crime. Right. Is that how it went in Arizona as well? Yeah. So we immediately had to start changing how we did things. And so for us, I don't know exactly how it is in Colorado. I do have a very good buddy who is a Colorado Springs police officer. He was the first amputee actually in the state of Colorado to become a police officer. Shout out to my man, Ban there. But in Arizona, we had to start doing some restrictions because we didn't want our people walking in and getting exposed needlessly. Right. Mm -hmm. So all the calls are prioritized for us. So we have priority one, two, three, and four. And we also have a priority referred to as hot. So a hot call would be something, let's say like a domestic violence where somebody is actively using violence against somebody else. And we have to get there to intervene in that to essentially protect or save somebody. Mm -hmm. So a hot call like that warranted the same response. Uh, Priority one is just below that. So that could still be a life in danger kind of call. And those calls, uh, hots and ones remain the same. Our cops went to those, no questions asked, no matter what. When we looked at our priority twos, threes, and fours, so twos kind of could go either way, right? They could be something where somebody could be in danger or maybe not so much and we don't have to go as fast. And so we left twos up to the sergeants on the street because one thing the sheriff and I believe strongly in is the leadership throughout our ranks and trusting that they will make much better decisions at their level than I can make for them at my level because I'm going to have a little bit of a disconnect Mm -hmm. and uh, they're going to know it's just like a ground war, right? They're going to know what they're seeing in front of them and they're going to know the best course of action. So for priority twos, we left those up to the street sergeants and we said, you make the call. Um, If you feel it warrants a response, go ahead and go. If you feel that it could be dealt with via phone call, 
then deal with it that way. And then priority threes and fours, which are typically like thefts or my neighbor looked at me wrong and I want to file a report, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. We made those phone calls only. Okay, interesting. So do you think that this is one of the reasons why there was a huge increase in firearm purchases? No, I actually think there was a huge increase in firearms purchases. I don't think how we police or how we structured our policing during COVID mm-hmm. had that effect. I think the huge surge in firearms was from the national narrative and people seeing that there seemed to be a push by one group or another mm-hmm. for us not to be able to do our job correctly and that some police agencies were having their hands tied and and actually not being able to deal with criminals effectively. I, I think people were watching all of this play out and they were seeing like, hey, this is not cool because let's take Colorado, for instance, if I'm in downtown Denver and these people are all rioting and I'm calling 911 because I have a problem and they're basically telling me, look, we'll get to you when we get to you because the city's burning down. Mm-hmm. I think people got really scared really quick and saw that, oh my God, I've got to be responsible for my own safety. And so you saw that surge in firearms purchases. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that that played a role. I think that with toilet paper being scarce, I think that was one of the reasons for people to go out and buy guns. <laughs> oh, weird. Yeah, that's so weird. Nothing COVID had anything to do with toilet paper. Though. I know. This whole thing is just nuts. But I do kind of think to a degree that when people are losing their jobs, they're out of work, there's the stay-at-home order, people are kind of losing their minds. And I think with all of that, whether the cops are answering to calls or not, violent or not, I think that it still made people feel uneasy. And for those who've never had a gun, they're like, well, what am I going to do if somebody tries to break in and rob me because resources are limited? Even for a while, meat was limited. You go to the grocery store and it was just so random, the certain things that they couldn't get in stock. Uh, Seriously, like we were in bizarro world. Yeah. I think right now I heard that blue cheese right now is hard to get. You can't even make this stuff up. What caused blue cheese to be scarce? (laughs) Probably Facebook. Yeah, probably. (laughs) So I think that that did, because I'm a firearms instructor, and so I always ask people why they decided to buy a gun and take up training, because I realized pretty quickly that a lot of the people that I was training were first-time gun owners. And just out of curiosity, I was just kind of wondering what sparked that. And a lot of them did say COVID. And then I saw a huge uptick once the riots and stuff started happening, which I couldn't even imagine. I've always said during this time, regardless of what side, I wouldn't want to be a politician. I wouldn't want to be a police officer. There are certain occupations right now that I would not want to be in your guys' shoes just with everything going on. Yeah. And it's for us, we're, we're kind of used to it because generally speaking, they hate us till they need us. Yeah. Um, we're, we're not like firefighters. Not everybody loves us. So we're kind of used to the hate and it kind of becomes very cyclic when you have a long career. You can look through your career and you can look at the the cyclic hate love mm-hmm. that goes on through your career from society as a whole. Generally speaking, though, I, I think for us, it, it's difficult, but it's bearable more so in Arizona, probably than other areas. I know like I my heart goes out to like Seattle and Portland and mm-hmm. and some of these cities that are dealing with some of this civil unrest because it really does become it feels very Civil War-ish. And even here in our profession, it feels very Civil War-ish because I believe strongly in what I do. I believe strongly in protecting others and protecting the freedoms of the Constitution in our country. And I think that for me, that I am a good person doing a good job. And I have family members that believe that I am the Gestapo because I wear a uniform for no other reason 
then I wear a uniform. So I now become they. Mm-hmm. So you have families that are becoming divided. And that's why I say it, it feels very civil wars because there's so much division. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Going back to the gun thing real quick. My neighbor across the street, she got a hold of me and she says, hey, I, I just asked my brother to bring me some guns because I heard that they're coming to the suburbs. And I was like, look, th- this is all fake propaganda. I said, these are psyops. They're messing with people's minds. Don't buy into it. If you, you do need a gun to protect yourself, I would tell that to every American because I would rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. So, you know, I, I was happy that she was going to protect herself, but I said, hey, you're kind of doing it for the wrong reasons. You're, you're letting the hype scare you. And I, so I, I think that played into it a lot is, oh, yeah. is all the hype and paying attention to social media. Yeah, I definitely think that that definitely played a role. I've always wondered, do officers have a duty to protect civilians or is it just their job to implement laws? Well, our job is not to implement. Our, our job is to enforce. So, okay. uh, and that's, that's kind of like when people get mad at us, like, hey, you arrested me for this. Well, yes, that's my job. Well, that's a bullshit law. Oh, sorry. I don't know if I can cuss on here. Yeah, you can. <laughs> um, so they say, oh, that's a bullshit law. Okay. I may not disagree with you. I may say, yeah, you're right, but I didn't create this law. Legislators did. You elected them into office and they made laws. So if you have an issue with that, you've got to get legislation to get that law off the books. And uh, that's not a cop's problem. My job is to simply enforce the laws that are on the books. And so that's kind of what I do. But back to your question about a duty to protect. No, we there's there's case law in the U.S. that says I do not have to put myself in danger for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, do we do that? Yes, we do. Uh, because I would I would gladly and I know, you know, people will say, well, this is very cliche, but it it is in a sense. But it's true because I've done it. Uh, the people I've worked with done it. I would give up my life for another person if I felt that I could save them. And I, I don't think you view it as giving up your life. I think you view it as doing your job. And if I happen to get killed while I'm doing my job, well, that's something that I've accepted early on. And most cops have. You mm-hmm. you have those discussions with your family. You have letters written telling people how you really feel about them and that, you know, that you love them and all that kind of stuff, all the stuff that sometimes you're afraid to say to family members, Mm -hmm. you do all of that in preparation because you have accepted death and you understand that it's part of the job. So you tend to put yourself in harm's way for others. But is, are we duty bound to do that? No. Yeah, that's what I thought. And I've argued with people on Facebook about that. So I'm glad (laughs) to know I'm right. (laughs) Let's go back to enforcing laws. I know that with mandatory masks and stuff like that, there was people that were saying that police officers weren't enforcing it. And I was like, it's not their job and it's not a law. But there have been things that have turned into a law, like such as mag capacity, which there's been tons of law enforcement that have said we're not enforcing it because it's not really enforceable. Right. So how do you feel about that? Because it is a law, but technically they're taking a stand. Same with the red flag laws. I know there was a lot of counties that decided we're not going to enforce that because of all the problems that come with it. Yeah. So for for me particularly and for the sheriff that I work for, because Sheriff Lamb is a huge Second Amendment guy, Mm -hmm. a huge freedom guy, a huge constitutional guy. And I I want people to understand their sheriff's offices because there's about 3,100 sheriff's offices across the U.S. Sheriffs are elected officials elected by the people. So people need to understand how important that position is in their communities. Your sheriff is your last line of defense for the Constitution because he becomes or she becomes the holder of enforcing or not enforcing. And they should be doing that based on that document. Not So for us, I'll give you an example. And I know 
I know you and I had, had messaged that we were going to talk about this a little bit. Our governor put in force an executive order saying that people had to do X, Y, and Z because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And we, as a sheriff's office, said, okay, well, that infringes on constitutional rights. And so we actually had to put out an internal message to our deputy sheriffs on the road telling them, look, here's the executive order. The executive order demands that we inform people that they are going against the executive order. It does not mandate arrest. It does not mandate citation. And it allows us to give warnings. So we are going to give warnings until we are blue in the face because we do not feel that citing or arresting somebody, for example, choosing not to wear a mask is the proper thing to do because that is taking away, it's chipping away at freedoms and it's chipping away at personal choices by adults to do what they feel is right or what they feel is wrong. And so we had to tell our people, this is the executive order. And we want you to fully understand that no governor, no congressman, no anybody has the right to override the constitution or the ability to override the constitution. So we're guided by the constitution and we would ask each of you to act with that in mind and perform your duties as such. So we're not essentially giving them a direct order to disobey the governor. We're telling them follow the constitution as your guide. And that will allow you to not infringe on people's rights by like this mask law not making somebody do X because a governor said so, but the constitution says that we can do otherwise. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't happen everywhere. I'm going to tell you that right now. There's a lot of leadership across the country that bend to whoever's the loudest. And so I'll give you an example of where that backfired on us and we stood our ground. So there was a local church that decided Easter Sunday, we are having Easter service. And so they reached out to us and they said, hey, uh, this is what we want to do. And we said, that's well within your rights, or uh, we would just ask that you please follow the governor's guidelines. And they said, we are absolutely going to follow those guidelines. We're going to practice social distancing. We're going to you know, have measures in place as best we can, but we are going to have a large gathering that's going to go over the recommended numbers. And we said, that is absolutely fine because you have the First Amendment right to do what you are doing. And there's no way that we're going to get involved in preventing that. Mm -hmm. So that church then announced on social media that they were doing this with the blessing of the sheriff's office, which of course caught immediate media attention. And so the media started blasting us and the sheriff and I started getting hate mail, people telling us how we were going to kill thousands of people by letting these people go to church. And uh, so we had to just keep reminding people, we abide by the constitution. We swore an oath to that. And that's what guides us. And because you feel a certain way, does not mean that me as a government authority is going to trample all over the constitution because you feel a certain way. And so we had to continually explain that to people. And I got called every name in the book. We got called murderers. We got hate mail. The sheriff got blasted, you know, all over social media, but we stood our ground because we think when everybody looks back, that's what they're going to look back on. Who stood up and did their job. And that's our job is to protect the constitution and protect the people and their rights. And I think when this all passes, you're going to look back and you're going to see a bunch of weak leaders that failed to do that. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to see a few strong ones that stood up and we took some punches, but we're willing to do it because that's our job. I love it. Sheriff Lamb, he did actually end up getting COVID, didn't he? Yes, he did. (laughs) Talk about your all-time backfire. (laughs) And the funny thing is, uh, so he got it and then we got quarantined because he and I work in, in very close proximity all the time. So yeah. when he was diagnosed with it, that was a Tuesday morning conversation because he had flown out to the White House. They had called him and said, hey, can you come out for 
a conference with the president. He says, yeah. So he gets there and I'm back here at home. And he calls me early that morning. He says, hey, I'm in the White House infirmary and I've got COVID. And I'm like, oh, man, are you kidding me? And he's like, no. So my first thought was like, dude, how are you going to get back? Because right. you can't fly. And so he's like, yeah, I'm working on that. And so um, then I got a hold of our public health and I had to figure out what happens with us because we're direct exposures. And so we had to, you know, we had to go through some protocols. So essentially, I spent 14 days on lockdown with the sheriff when he spent his 14 days on lockdown. He was pretty asymptomatic, but he did become the poster child for the wearing the masks. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got blasted a little bit for it. But the funny thing is, when he came out of it, he came out of quarantine. Uh, one of the news stations asked him, they're like, well, are you going to wear a mask now? And he said, no, because it's still personal choice and mm -hmm. I choose not. And he said, uh, what I want everybody to understand is because of the Constitution, you get to make choices. There's consequences with that choice. And he said, and I suffered the consequence. I got COVID and I had to go through it, but I still have the personal choice to wear the mask or not. And I choose not to. So there it is. I love it. I wish that that was more common here. Because everywhere you go, you have to wear a mask. And it's just, it's so ridiculous, in my opinion. If anything, I think you're putting more germs on your face because people are wearing the same mask over and over. They're putting on their table and their pocket and their purse, and it's just collecting germs. And then you're putting on your face. And right. then even working out with a mask on your face, how is that healthy? For first responders, uh, that was one of the things that our county board of supervisors, so we have a county board of supervisors, some areas they call them commissioners but they are essentially elected positions to represent the county as a whole. And so they asked us, hey, we're flirting with the idea of making it mandated to wear masks in the county. How would this affect public safety? And we said, we don't know. We said, have you guys done any studies on the cardiovascular system and what that would do to our people if they have an adrenaline dump, if they get in a fight, if they have to get in a foot pursuit? And they're now having restricted breathing mm -hmm. because I would much I, as a cop, I would take my chances with COVID over a heart attack or, or some type of cardiac event caused because I don't know the effects of a mask on my body when I get into a tense situation. And so we, we had those discussions with them and kind of walked them through that. And luckily, we didn't get a mandate here. And it's really personal choice in our county. That's great. I'm going to take a quick break and talk about SB Tactical. If you have an HK MP5, MP5K, or a clone, you should check out the HKPDW brace. It's a complete ready-to-install assembly that gives you a three-position adjustable brace with a very short collapsed length, and it's made out of 6061 aluminum and steel rods, so it's super solid, stable. It is available on their website right now for $329.99, but if you use the code GUNFUNNY15, you will get 15% off, and that is at sb-tactical.com. Matt, I want to know, what are your thoughts on the protests and the riots, which I know they're not the same. Right. On protests, I'm completely fine with that. I mean, that's, again, that's a First Amendment right. So, you know, if they're going to go out and they're going to peacefully protest and try to get their cause known and, and make changes completely, I mean, that's what our country is about. It's, just, it's about a constant evolution of getting better, right? And so I'm completely in favor of that. The minute that they break a law or they become destructive or violent, they are not protesters anymore. They are rioters and looters mm -hmm. and they need to go to jail. And yeah. I mean, that's pretty cut and dry. And I know people try to muddy up those waters, but it is very black and white. If you're protesting, you're peaceful, 
you're generally doing it during business hours, you have a specific cause that you are trying to push for change, and you're trying to influence others when they are rioting and looting, it is all about destruction. It is about breaking laws, overwhelming the system, and trying to cause mass anarchy and chaos. And, and all of that is against the rule of law, and therefore, they need to be locked up. Mm -hmm. Have you guys been kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place with everything going on? Because obviously, the media is intensifying this whole thing, and <laughs> it's almost like you're hesitant to even do anything because all eyes are on you, whereas the rioters are basically getting away with all kinds of stuff right now. Yeah. And luckily, so I'll, I'll first say for our county, we, we've been doing really well. And I, I would attribute that to the fact that uh, both our sheriff and, and the chiefs of police throughout our county and our communities are really in touch with their communities. They have really good relationships. They have open dialogue. We're really transparent. So I think that helps our cause. So we haven't suffered a lot of that. I know the Tucson area, in the Phoenix area, they both had some rioting and some looting. And I think what you're seeing is, again, I'm going to point back to weak leadership, that you have some weak leadership in some of these cities and towns that are siding with those breaking the law and siding against those charged with enforcing the law. And they, they are very much armchair quarterbacking everything that we do, having never done the job before or having never dealt with civil unrest or, or riots or looting or any of that kind of stuff. And they're, they're sitting back and they're tying chiefs and sheriff. Well, they can't tie sheriff's hands, but they're tying chief's hands. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of working for a sheriff. He's an elected official. So he answers to nobody but the people. But uh, chiefs, they get their hands tied a lot of times by a city council or by a mayor or a town manager who determines that, hey, if you want to keep your job as the head of this agency, this is how you're going to behave. And then uh, by proxy, the whole agency gets their hands tied. And you're seeing that up in the, the Seattle, Portland area right now with, well, you're, you're seeing the remnants of it, but that's what leads to further and further because it just, it, it just emboldens the lawbreakers mm -hmm. and they think like, oh, we're, we're free to do what we want. We have free reign. And then all of a sudden you have lawbreakers from all over the country like, oh shit, it's a party up in Portland. Let's go break stuff. And you get, all these people coming in from out of the area that are doing nothing but ruining communities. They're not vested there anyways, and they're just destroying businesses. They're destroying lives, and they're being allowed to do it, and the cops have their hands tied, and it is very disheartening to see that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Can you explain exactly what defunding the police means? You know, I... <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means because I think they, when they created that term, I, I think they basically were pushing for um, like the Minneapolis thing. Let's just get rid of the police department. Mm -hmm. And then you had, this is what makes them so idiotic when they talk about this stuff, because they're saying, well, let's get rid of police departments. And then you have like this Chaz or chop or whatever the hell they're going to call it now up in the, the uh, Seattle area. And you had them. They said, we don't want police because police are bad. We're going to have these people that go around and they kind of enforce the rules and make sure people follow the rules and don't do anything wrong. And so we were like, so you mean police? Right. That's exactly <laughs> what I was <laughs> thinking. That's what cops do. So um, you, you just have, you have people that are ignorant and don't pay attention to facts. They're acting purely off emotions. I think you're seeing the product now 
of the indoctr indoctrination of our children. Um, you've, you, it started a couple, well, it started probably 30, 40 years ago, but it has progressively gotten worse. And I, I think those young adults are the ones that are creating these problems now. And it's because they've been indoctrinated into those beliefs mm -hmm. and, it, it, you know, belief that the people that are actually good or bad. Um, you know, it, they're, they're saying our cops are bad. Any authority figures, bad military is bad. Everybody that actually protects this country and protects their communities. Those are bad. The good people are the ones that just do whatever they want and don't follow the rule of law. So they've got it completely upside down. And, and I think that's the push is let's just push to get rid of all authority so we can do what I want or I, they can do what they want with impunity. Mm hmm. Yeah, it definitely seems ridiculous. How are your peers acting in response to all of this? Because it kind of seems, I can't imagine law enforcement would be in such a hurry to help these people when they're trying to get rid of them. Right. It, it, it's, a, it's a really weird profession because, um, and I've had this happen to me before where, you know, I've had to, I've had to help a guy who just shot him. So it's a weird profession in the sense that somebody just tried to kill me and now I'm helping him to make sure he stays alive. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing. You, you know, people yell at us, they scream at us, they call us all kind of different things. They hate towards us, they hate on us. And at the end of the day, if I had to protect that same person, I would. Does it irk you a little bit? Yes. I mean, we're human beings. So, um, you know, when they're, especially when they're screaming all these things and, and saying all these nasty things about what they believe I am. And I know I'm not any of those things. You know, my natural inclination is to, to strike back and say you're full of shit, but you have to maintain and you have to, you have to understand that your job may call on you to actually help now that person who was just calling you a racist pig. Yeah. That's why I'm saying I would not want to be in an officer's shoes right now. I feel like it's probably one of the I hate to say it, but I feel like it's definitely one of the worst jobs right now, probably of 2020. It, it is. I mean, yeah, 2020 it's, pretty much sucks all the way around, yeah, but, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's not, it's not a favorite job right now. We're having, we're having a little bit of recruitment uh, issues, not, not super bad, but yeah. you know, people kind of like sitting back going, wow, ah, do I really want to put up with all that? Is it really worth it? Right. I will give props though. I'll, I'll say this as a, as a, I'm 48 years old, been doing this for a while. and as an old school cop now that, that I am, this younger generation of police are more community oriented than my young generation of police. So the cops I came up with as a five, 10 year guy, um, these cops now that are the one to probably seven years on the, the force mm -hmm. are more community minded than ever. So I'll, I'll give you an example. When, when I got hired on like a standard answer in an oil board, when, when you sit down to get hired, they're like, why do you want to do this job? I want to help people is, you know, an answer you hold to give. I want to help people. And you, you do believe that to some extent, but really you're like, I want to drive cars fast and I want to arrest people <laughs> and I want to do cool, exciting stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, that, that was, but now these youngsters, they believe that with all of their heart. Like I want to help people. I want to make a difference in my community. I want to do something and be part of something that's bigger than myself. So it's really cool to watch because um, they really do believe it through and through. And, and that's what gives us older cops hope because we know like, all right, man, we're, we're fine. They're, they're going to be good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you believe that there are bad cops out there? Oh, absolutely. There's 
there's bad people everywhere. And, and, you know, one of, one of our coworkers here at the sheriff's office, who is a, a civilian, she has a close friend that's a teacher. And uh, she, she told us about a conversation the other day. And I thought that's, that's beautiful. So what happened was that the teacher said, I can't believe you work at a sheriff's office. You know, we should defund the police. And she's like, yeah, I know we should defund teachers too. And she was like, what, what are you talking? Why would you, why would we defund teachers? And she's like, cause you guys are a bunch of rapists. All you do is rape your kids. Like you guys are always on the news for having sex with your students. Mm-hmm. So we should just defund teachers. And she's like, well, no, that was only a few teachers. Like, wow, that's crazy. Cause there's only a few cops that are bad, mm-hmm. but you want to defund the whole agency. Exactly. And so it turned, yeah. turned into that kind of conversation. So yes, there's, there's bad apples in this profession. You're never going to get away from that because they're people. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not the profession that makes them bad. It's who they are as a person. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think I've heard that an officer has eight seconds to assess the situation, to determine if they're in danger or not, which means yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> okay. So is it typically shorter than that? Uh, yeah, it can be much shorter than that. So I, I can tell you on several occasions, I've walked through a door and by the time I have cleared the doorway, so I've, I've walked from one room into the next room, mm-hmm. I've had to make the decision to identify what's in front of me, see it as a deadly threat, go to my weapon, pull my weapon, get rounds on target, and then assess the situation again. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not an eight-second gunfight. That is milliseconds. Yeah. Um, it may feel like a long time, but it goes very, very fast, and you have a very short time frame. Um, and, and people, what people don't understand is that you have a natural tendency as a human being to not want to take another human's life, whether you want to admit that or not, because there's going to be guys that are like, oh, I'm a tough guy. You know, I can do it. No problem. Well, you can say that all day long. but It's not real. Mm-hmm. There's a natural tendency to not want to injure or hurt or kill another human being. We, we all just are built like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that aren't are psychopaths, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. normal people are built like that. So they're that causes a hesitancy. And I've seen it in my career. I've seen it in, and I've seen it with some of my buddies who have gotten killed where that hesitancy can cost you your life. So you have to work on, on drilling that down. And that's, you know, that's where a lot of your training comes in is that you train through those scenarios so that when you get put into a dangerous situation, you recognize danger faster and you react to it faster because it's the, it's really going to be quickest on target, most accurate round that's going to win a gunfight. And not that we're always in gunfights. Sometimes it's just a fist fight. Sometimes a guy is running at you, throwing a punch. And, you know, like I just walked up to a house and all of a sudden there's a guy running out of a door, throwing a punch at me. And I've got to figure out what exactly is going on, how I'm going to react to that. And mm-hmm. then, and then uh, act. And it's that whole OODA loop thing. If, if anybody's familiar with the OODA loop, it's the whole observe, orient, decide, and then act. So you've got to go through that whole loop and you've got to do it very quickly or you can get hurt or killed. So it, it's I, eight seconds is a really long time. Mm-hmm. And I got to believe that because you have to act so quickly, it does leave room for potential errors. And in that case, that's, I think, when the media gets a hold of it and just kind of has a heyday with it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when you let's talk about shooting an unarmed individual. So again, you look at our training scenarios and our training scenarios are such where you know, they put you through scenarios where somebody's reaching for their waistband. They're not listening to your commands. They're doing furtive movements. They're they're doing things that that cue you to understand that hey, this guy is not listening. This guy is not obeying my commands. This guy is doing things that is 
counter what I'm asking them to do. And I think I'm in danger here. And then they do something that looks exactly like what danger looks like. So when somebody pulls a gun from their waistband, there's a very distinct look to that whole action. So if somebody does the exact same thing, but it's a cell phone, what's happening is my mind is processing what's going on and I'm having to do that whole OODA loop thing, right? And so I'm having to observe what's going on. I'm having to orient to what what that situation is. Then I'm having to decide what I'm going to do to counter that. And then I'm taking action. And when you're talking about gunfights specifically, once I've decided to take that action, it's usually happening before they are able to change their behavior, if that makes sense. So if I've pulled my gun and and I've already made the decision like, oh my God, this is a deadly threat. I've Mm -hmm. got to counter this deadly threat. I pull up and I start pulling the trigger and that trigger pull is, is going through and, you know, I strike the hammer and then the guy that is pulling whatever out of his waistband drops it, that round's already going. Mm-hmm. And so that whole thing has already started happening. And by the time my brain recognizes, holy shit, the threat just stopped, it's too late. My actions are already happening and I've already dealt with the deadly threat. And now we're already to recoil and assessing. And so that's where we get jammed up. They say, oh my God, you shot an unarmed person. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but the totality of the circumstances made it look like he was a deadly threat based on my training and experience. And so I acted on that. And by the time I acted, it was already, it was done. And then my brain realized that's no longer a deadly threat, but it's too late. And people discount that. And there's so force science is, a, is a, a big one for cops because that talks about all this, the, the physiology, the psychological effects of all of this that we deal with, and they kind of run you through that. And that's what I think that's what the normal public doesn't understand. And that's what we try to explain to them. It, and we try and get them to go through some of these judgment scenarios on the, uh, the virtual machines, you know, so that uh, they can understand how fast that all happens and and how fast they have to make these decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think what always got me is just the person that poses a threat. If they just listened, if they just stopped, turned around, held their hands up. And that's kind of what always got me is, well, if they just did that, then the entire thing could have been avoided. Well, yeah. And if you look nationwide, of course, they're playing cop videos from all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at all these videos, that's, That's one of the main things you'll see over and over and over because it's instilled in us from the academy, these commands, sir, get on the ground, sir, drop the gun, sir, drop the knife, drop the knife, drop the knife, drop the knife, on the ground, on the ground, on the ground. We're constantly giving orders to people. And what people are doing now is because of, you know, they become so emboldened to this and I can question all authority. Well, I got news for you. This is the real world out here. And sometimes we don't have time to deal with your question and answer session, because there's an emergency situation unfolding, or I'm going to put hands on you. And I know that that's where most of my buddies get killed is when we go to put hands on somebody in handcuff. So when we get to that point, and I'm telling you, you're under arrest, put your hands behind your back, and then they want to pull away and argue. Well, to me, why are you trying to buy yourself time? You're buying yourself time because you're trying to come up with a plan to hurt, injure, Mm -hmm. or kill me. And I have to counter that now. And then people will say, well, oh my God, he just wanted to know why. Well, look, the time for that is after you do what I tell you to do. Yeah. So 
turn around, put your hands behind your back. I put handcuffs on you. Then I'm going to explain to you all day long what's going on. Here's mm-hmm. what's going to happen. You're under arrest. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. That's going to, I'll answer all your questions, but you got to do what I'm asking you to do in the first place. Yeah, exactly. How much training do officers typically receive? So it, it's going to vary nationwide for your initial academy. Um, I think our academy here in Arizona, I, I may screw this up, but I think we're right around 585 hours total. So when you, from, from start to finish of the academy, you'll have 585 hours of training, which is, you know, defensive tactics, firearms, constitutional law, um, Arizona state law, and all that kind of stuff. And so that's going to vary in different states and different uh, or around the nation. And then once you get into it, so once you're an officer, that's going to vary agency to agency. So like for us, we have what's called AZ Post, which is our regulatory board for the state. And they regulate uh, you being certified as a, as a peace officer in the state of Arizona. They mandate certain hours of training. So they say, okay, you have to have like eight hours of continuing training, which could be like case law updates or, you know, stuff like that. Um, then they mandate that you have like some hands-on training. So you need so many hours, typically like 24 hours of hands-on training, which it, that would be like defensive tactics, um, handgun stuff. Um, they, they mandate that you have certain shoots done. So you have to have a judgmental shoot done every year where you're showing that you have proper judgment. Um, then you have to do score shooting where you're shooting at paper essentially to, to show that you have a, a good enough marksmanship level to pass the minimum standards. Um, so that's typically what a minimum year looks like. And then there's some agencies that are better than others to stacking extra on that and giving their officers above and beyond that more. Interesting. So I did read something recently and I was just trying to look up her name because I, I can't think of it off the top of my mind, but there was a female cop and she did pro shooting on the side. She did Out in LA. Yep. Yeah. And apparently she's getting charged because she received too much training or she used that training, you know, that that pro training when she was in a self-defense situation. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because I've heard this one talked about and she she's a phenomenal shooter. And under the, the circumstances that she was in, that was an absolute clean shoot. So her life was in danger or the lives of others were in danger and she acted on it. And she took a shot that I'm going to tell you probably at least 70, but probably higher than that percent of the cops would not be confident to take or would not make effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's easy to armchair quarterback stuff because I've heard I've heard people question her backdrop because, oh, my God, she you know, she shot the guy and her backdrop wasn't clear. And that's all always one of the things they tell you to look at. But most of the people that armchair quarterback stuff have never been in one of those situations, because when you're in it, you understand that there's a lot of physiological things, psychological things, and that you're you're trying to do all of these things at once and protect your own life. Mm-hmm. And ridiculous that she got charged. Ridiculous that they're saying she had too much training. So that would be like a, a sniper on a SWAT team getting charged for a sniper shot because he practiced on a scoped rifle. Like, look, man. You know, you practice on a really good rifle and you practice a lot. And then you took a shot on somebody in a precise situation. So we're going to go ahead and charge you because you're too good. It's retarded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm going to change the subject a little bit. So human trafficking, 
I know that's a major concern, especially in Arizona, as well as other states, but it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. What kind of efforts are you guys doing to curb this? So for us, we're, if anybody looks up Pinal County and sees where we're at in Arizona, we're not on the border. We're about 65 miles off the border in the southwest portion of our county, but it's completely open desert down to the, the U.S.-Mexico border. And that is a heavy trafficked corridor for the Mexican cartels who do a lot of body trafficking, right? Mm-hmm. So us specifically, that's our big fight is stopping those bodies from being trafficked up because they do a lot of that. And then you have the surrounding areas like Phoenix is a hub. Phoenix is essentially a distribution center for drugs and humans. So they get to the Phoenix area and then they distribute them all over the place, right? And so Phoenix has a lot of different assets that are working that you have a lot of federal agencies that are working those investigations. Um, Phoenix PD themselves, they have squads that are working those investigations. So we're more of a front line trying to stop that as they're being transported. And then the major metro areas are more dealing with the actual trafficking of them and what's going, you know, where they're being enslaved. Because a lot of them are, are, you know, let's face it, a lot of them are sex slaves. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this, like, in the the law enforcement world, that's a, that's a huge machine to stop because you guys, you know, everybody will know that your listeners will understand this, that this country has a lot of haves and have nots. And the haves have a lot of money and they have a lot of power. And if those people don't want something to change, it's very hard to change that. Mm-hmm. So we are fighting a very big uphill battle when it comes to sex trafficking. As you can see by how silent a lot of people are about it, mm-hmm. right? They, they just don't want to talk about it because it's a taboo thing. And I've said this for years, you know, I, I did a, a program on the NRA called Defending Our American. When we were talking on there, one of our talking points was where the U.S. is headed. And, and I said back then, I was like, dude, we are Rome all over again. It, we're going down the same road. And I think we're at the, <laughs> the point where the country is about to implode because we are at the point now where the pervasiveness and the hypocrisy is all reaching its max, where people are trying to say, hey, pedophilia is a sexual identification. No, I identify as that. No, mm-hmm. that's bullshit. Yeah. That is a sickness. So it's it's a huge fight. And I, I just don't, you know, I, I don't have an answer as to how we can win that because it's a big one. Yeah, I can't even imagine. That's another crazy thing that's come out. And it's not like it's new in 2020, but now that it's suddenly okay to be a pedophile, right? it's just all I can think. I'm just so glad I don't have kids. Yeah, it, it's rough. And, yeah. and it. I'll tell you, during COVID, we saw a significant spike in our crimes against children in the sense of uh, the internet stuff. Wow. Um, predators, predators looking for children for sex. We had a, a significant spike in that because, well, I don't know why, but I mean, they were, I guess they were at home and just had nothing else to do but mm-hmm. try and lure kids into that world. But it's hard to understand because I don't, you know, growing up, I don't remember it being that big of a problem. So I don't know how it has become this big of a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Do you have any future plans that you can share with listeners? Well, I plan on retiring in a few years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not not a whole lot. I've been the, the sheriff has been a huge influence on some of the stuff I've done. Like I my social media presence was pretty nil and under his leadership he he's kind of guided me and, and uh you know tried tried to say, Hey man, you know, for your afterlife, let's let's get you some social media presence because he's a social media king. He's all over Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and he does the live PD thing and 
And we did, uh, like I was on a series called 60 Days In with him and, and we did that. So that got a little exposure. And so, you know, you get your, your IG followers that, that jump up a little bit. And I've tried to boost my, my social media game a bit. And, uh, I've started, I was telling, uh, one of my buddies, I've started writing down some of my just adventures from over the years, uh, particularly with, I was chasing Mexican cartels there for a while, which was a whole different world. And so, you know, I started to write some of those down and, and the sheriff's been kind of helping me out and guiding me on maybe how to put a book together. So I just, I don't see myself as like a book writer, but he's like, man, we can do this. So we'll see, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. Very cool. And for those who do want to follow you on social media, what are your social media handles? So Instagram, I am deputy underscore one time and same on Facebook and Twitter. I, I really don't jump on Twitter. Twitter is a different crowd. Yeah. So uh, I just I just push my IG feed to Twitter, basically. Um, and I'm deputy one time on there, too. OK, awesome. All right. Well, I know you can't stay. You have to get back to work, but I really appreciate you taking the time and even just talking about this stuff, because I know even now, it's just like a lot of people just aren't really willing to talk about it. And I think that it helps. It helps for people to understand, I guess, both situations, the more people talk about it. So I appreciate you being so open and doing such a great job. And I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I I would just tell your listeners right now, it's a tough time for the whole country. We'll get through it. But even if you don't like cops, just have a conversation and and they'll learn a lot. You know, Mm -hmm. they'll learn a lot about what we do. And uh, don't be afraid to approach them and and, uh, have some good discussions because that's that's what's going to help us all get through it is just have an understanding of one another. Absolutely. Okay, so Matt had to go, but I have here with me John Snow, who is a patron of Gun Funny. And John, thanks for joining us today. Obviously, that's not your real name, but that's pretty much how everybody on the Patreon page knows you. So we'll just stick with John Snow. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And you're actually able to join me because you have to work from home because you refuse to wear a mask, correct? <laughs> yep. All right, cool. Well, thanks for taking one for the team and standing up. <laughs> Do what I can. All right. Before we get into it, I'm going to talk about IWI real quick. The Galil Ace SB in 762x39. Been looking like a lot of fun lately. I actually have the SBR version heading my way. It has a side folding brace from SB Tactile. It could be fired with or without the brace extended. The modernized Galil Ace is extremely reliable, merging from the AK-47 and the Finnish Volmint RK62, and it's much lighter than the original Galil because modern polymers are integrated in its design, and the new version is compatible with your standard AKM, AK47 magazines. Definitely check it out. That is at IWI.US, and you can find that at IWI.US. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY15. That gets you 15% off all of the accessories that you see on their website. Politics. What is going on in the world today? It's political AF. All right, political AF. Ninth Circuit Court finds California mag ban unconstitutional. And this has happened before. I know we've had some chat about it in the Patreon group. John, you've been following this quite a bit. So where are we now with that? Yeah, it's been pretty interesting. The judge Benitez, who put the initial decision down that struck it down, that caused Freedom Week that everybody in California was able to buy magazines for finally, and then issued a stay a week later. 
actually a very smart move on his part by doing that because by putting that stay in place, he gave everyone who purchased magazines in that time essentially the get out of jail free card on that because by issuing his own stay, it wasn't going to be challenged until the higher version of the court mm-hmm. took it up. So he was part of this and we have now a treat judge panel that on the, again, the Ninth Circuit Court, which usually is one of the most liberal courts in the country. But because of changes in judges over the years, two out of three of these judges on this panel were not the typical liberals. One of them was appointed by Trump and one of them was appointed by George W. Bush. So only one of those left was a Clinton. That appointee voted against it, but two out of three voted with Benita's decision and essentially struck this down. The unfortunate part of it, though, is that doesn't put everybody in the clear to just buy more magazines yet. A whole bunch of stores immediately started selling online to Californians as soon as this decision came down. But most of those stores are not shipping yet. They're still waiting because the state of California, they have a 21-day window where they can challenge this decision or it becomes struck from the books per the Benitez decision. Mm -hmm. But if they don't challenge that within that time, then it goes forward. But until then, the stay is still in effect. So you still cannot be purchasing them in California. Gotcha. Anybody that has received any in this time frame, that's still a very gray area. But there's been a lot of boating accidents in California lately, I've heard. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. So many boating accidents. <laughs> it's um, an epidemic. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, they really got to start testing those boats a little bit better because lots and lots of accidents. Lots of corona on the boats. <laughs> right. So this, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I'm actually hoping that if this goes through, that it'll actually kind of trickle down to other states. Because even in Colorado, there's a 15 mag capacity limit on magazines, which is stupid because nobody enforces. But I hope that this will kind of set the stage for other states. So who knows? Absolutely. And when do you think it's just a matter of time before they release a statement, correct? Yeah, honestly, I expect that we might hear something today. So before the show comes out on Monday. It's very possible. Yeah. Okay. But like I said, they have a 21 day window where the state of California can challenge the ruling. Gotcha. And if they file it, what they'll do is they'll put another one of the same kind of rulings in place where the law stays in place and we'll be waiting on the next step with the courts. And so that will be a larger panel of the Knights District Court. And then if it wins again there, it'll have to go on to the Supreme Court, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Because California, the Attorney General, I'm sure is not going to give up on this one. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what I'm thinking. Well, even if it passes this, I don't know if it's going to get much further. But I don't want to jinx it. We're not going to say that. We're just going to keep our fingers crossed. I think that it'll still keep moving, but I'm afraid that the state of California will continue to challenge it as long as they can. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I don't see them going down without much effort. All right, Sharps Bros. If you're building a jack or one of the other Sharps Bros lowers and want an upper that matches it, you need the SBUR03. It matches the lines of the Sharps Bros handguards. It's super clean, has that nice uniform look. The receiver is compatible with 5.56, 224 Valkyrie, 300 Blackout, 6.5 Grendel, but the port opening is large enough for 450 Bushmaster, 458 SOCOM, or 50 Beowulf, which actually I'm now putting together 300 Blackout. This will be my first 300 Blackout. 
So maybe I should look into that because I don't have a lower or an upper. Actually, all I have is the barrel. So yeah, that's that's pretty much all I have. (laughs) Anyway, so if you guys want to check those out, you can find it at sharpsbros.com and then there's links to everything. Like right now they're in stock at Optics Planet for $198.49. All right, now it's time for Q&A. Today's question, what pistol brace is currently your favorite and why? Man, that's a tough question. I gotta say, I still just really like the SBA-3. It's super comfortable to use and it's adjustable. It's just, I don't know, it looks... I don't want to say that it looks like a stock because it's not a stock, but it definitely kind of resembles more of the SBR type than a lot of the braces out there. What do you think? What would you pick? I have to go with either the SBA3 or the SBA4 for sure. Both of them revolutionized the pistol brace. Mm-hmm. I know. I've got a couple of both. They're both really comfortable. The only thing I don't like about the SBA3 is that the way it has the L at the back, if I'm doing something where I'm going through trees or stuff, that L can catch on things. Whereas because the SBA4 has the diagonal pieces on it, it will slide off of it. Interesting. That's the only thing about it. I'm actually but so. It's, it's a great brace. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at mine right now and I'm like, L shape? Where's the L shape? But I guess, then again, I'm not one for the outdoors as much. I like going hiking, but you don't really see me going through like trees and stuff. So. <laughs> But that's actually a good point. So it just goes to show they obviously get better with each model that they come out with. And the SBA4 was obviously made a little bit better. But I still, as far as like look wise, I think SBA3 looks a lot better and super easy, really comfortable to shoulder. It absorbs a lot of that recoil. It's just, it's really well made in my opinion. All right, Palmer 80. If you're wanting to build another AR right now and you're having trouble finding a lower, because that's the thing that is even with me building my 300 blackout, I'm like, okay, where am I going to get all these parts? Because we know that supplies are low everywhere, just across the board as far as ammo, guns, and even 80% lowers. But definitely, I know right now that they do have the AR 80% lowers on the website available. That would be the RL556V3, and it is an 80% kit. And the kit includes the jig and cutting bits needed to finish everything. And you can get that for $80, but you can actually get it for even less than that. Because if you use the code GUNFUNNY, you will get 15% off. And that is at Palmer80.com. Tactic Talk. Discussing popular guns and gear. Love it? Hate it? Find out now. CMMG just announced a new Banshee. It's the release of another version of their popular Banshee pistol. And I think when the first one came out, they were kind of all over the internet. The Banshee and Resolute in 9mm, if you aren't familiar with them, are a radial delayed blowback that have become well-known for high reliability and soft shooting PCC options. So what's new about the MK17 series? Well, this one, it takes P320 mags, which we all know is kind of the new Glock. Before it was like, does it take Glock mags? Well, now the question is, does it take P320 mags? John, what do you think about this? Have you had a chance to look over their website and check out this new gun? I haven't had a chance to get my hands on one yet. Mm -hmm. Not in the Mark 17 version anyway, but I played with one of the Glock versions when they came out and I was really intrigued by it. I've heard great things about the reliability. Ergonomics on them are great. And 
with everything that's been happening with P320s lately, all the options to customize those, I've been really thinking about diving into that. Mm -hmm. Something like this, where you have a PCC that takes the same mags, I think it's going to be a home run. I know. It's kind of crazy. Suddenly this year, it's all about the P320. And that's obviously because military law enforcement, they adopted as their new duty weapon. So kind of like Glock was in the past. And so now there's all these aftermarket parts being made for the P320. So people now are not only just buying the actual SIG P320, but they're also making their own. Like SIG just came out with their FCU that you can just buy alone. So you can pop that into a Palmer ADP 320. I guess you'd call it a frame, even though it's not framed because it's not the serialized part on it, but really easy to build your own now. And so since that's growing in popularity, I think a lot of people then want to use those magazines and kind of have because nothing's worse than going to the range and you have to bring a million magazines for all these different guns. It definitely takes up a lot more room, in my opinion. Yeah, I had about 30 mags in my bag the last time I went to the range. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Is that just so you wouldn't have to reload at the range? <laughs> yeah, but that was still only four guns worth. Wow, that's so crazy. So the Banshee, it's available in 5-inch and 8-inch barrels, comes equipped with the highly popular SBA3 brace. Good choice. And MSRP on the Banshee ranges from about twelve hundred to fifteen fifty, which is pretty well priced, I guess, nowadays for a complete PCC. All right, moving forward, Trigger Brew. So, Trigger Brew, just amazing coffee, great jerky. I actually I sent some to my friend over at Centerfire Distillery. We did a little trade where he sent me some whiskey, and I sent him beef jerky, and. He said that this was the best beef jerky that he's had in a while and that it's tough to find good beef jerky. So that was good to hear. I'm always anxious to hear what people think of the product. You guys can find it at triggerbrew.com. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY. That gets you 20% off. Stupid. Funny. Cool. Interesting. Awesome. As... Never mind. AF... Right now, there's a ton of people buying guns. If, unless you live under a rock, chances are you've heard that there's been millions and millions and millions of guns sold in the last couple of months. But of those new gun owners, they are majority women. So a girl in a gun, they conducted a survey of more than 6,000 members to specifically focus on why women are interested in buying a gun. And the results showed that 43% of women joined a girl in a gun to practice self-defense skills. 92% were in the process of obtaining or already have acquired their concealed carry or open carry permits. And this complemented the NSSF survey data that 25% of first-time buyers had already taken some from a firearm safety course and 63% inquired about taking a firearm safety course in the near future. I listed this article in the show notes if you guys want to click on it and read it in its entirety. But basically, as of August 2020, what prompted most people to buy firearms? So the biggest was 14%, and that was riots or fear of mobs and civil unrest. 12% upcoming elections concerns of bans, which that's nothing new. I think right before election year, there's always just an uptick of people buying guns because they think whoever gets in office is going to ban guns, which is very possible. I'm not saying that it's not. 12% urged by family or friend, which makes sense. I've actually had to teach quite a few people that they said 
the only reason why they're in the class is because their husband or their dad or their aunt or whoever pushed them to take this class. And lucky for me, they actually end up enjoying the class and they enjoy shooting the guns. And then I think, in my opinion, I'd like to think that I just converted someone. 8% just learned about training opportunities. 8% have a new firearm in the household and they want to know how to use it. 8% said it's lack of law enforcement resources. 7% pandemic uncertainty of access to essentials. Another 7% fear of targeted violence, discrimination. Another 7% rising unemployment, fear of crime. 6% recent safety crime experience. 4% quarantine, boredom, try something new. 3% ammo shortage concerns of waiting. And the last 3% is stimulus check provided opportunity. Yeah, I know that I've said this before in other shows and on previous episodes that I've seen a huge uptick in people taking classes. And I'm still probably teaching probably on average about four classes a week. And so far, it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight. It doesn't seem like it's dying down anytime soon. We'll see. But I don't think I think especially with the elections approaching, I don't really see it coming to an end anytime soon. But who knows? We'll see. Is there anything that you'd like to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. It's great to see so many people getting training, especially women. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's only going to amp up even more as we get closer to the election. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I mean, it's good. I'm not complaining about that. I definitely think that more people should buy guns, take up training. And it's nice to see that a lot of people are coming around and realizing that it's actually not a bad thing to have a gun and that really you're in charge of your own protection. You can't rely on other people for that. Okay, so now iTunes review. So after this, we are officially out. So if you guys have not written us an iTunes review, please do so. I would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. First iTunes review is Philosopher 2003. Note about sword fighting, five stars. I was just catching up on podcasts with the Liberty Doll episode. Thank you for having her. She is amazing. As for the sword issue, I have to say I love them as much as my guns. I do love studying medieval martial arts. Thank you again for all you do. Still loving the show. Next is Johnny357. Don't tread on my thoughts, five stars. Austin Tong has a tough but essential road ahead of him. The thought police have taken over higher education and have to rein in. It's an absolute travesty that schools can get away with punishing students who have done nothing wrong. They have destroyed the idea of rational debate and replaced it with mob bullying of anything they disagree with. Great job having him on. Keep up the amazing work. Okay, so John, out of those two, who would you pick to win a prize pack? I think I gotta go with the philosopher. All right, philosopher2003, contact me and I will send out a prize pack. And it's that time to wrap up. So guys, find me at gunfunny.com. There's links to everything. If you want to support the show, you enjoy it, and you want to just give a little bit each month, consider becoming a patron. You could do that at patreon.com forward slash gunfunny. $3 a month gets you access to our patron-only Facebook group, which is a lot of fun. It's very active. Jon Snow is in there among a lot of other people. Blown Deadline's also giving away a $300 gift certificate to a lucky patron each month. He's done a few patrons firearms so far, and they've come out really nice. He does awesome work. Also want to thank the $25 patrons who are Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran 8888, Ryan Morrison, Elliot and Mike Pappas, Joe Lyons, Justin Paulson, Jason Anderson, Joshua Hamp, Sportsman's Guide, Daniel Treadwell, and Star Wars 77. 
And King of the Patreons, what do you know? Jon Snow, the man himself, we have him on the show. He wants me to say the operator tickles doesn't breathe. She holds air hostage. No operator tickles. And guys, if you want to follow her on Instagram, it's tac, T-A-C underscore tickles. It's pretty funny. And just wanted to thank Matt Thomas for joining us today, who had to leave, but definitely give him a follow on Instagram. And then John, thanks for joining me for the rest of the show. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. All right. And on that note, we are out of here. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.